topic this afternoon is the war in Ukraine. It wasn't that long ago that uh, we were together <clears throat> at the festival and I gave a lesson outlining a few of my opinions regarding the war in Ukraine. Um, at that time, I spent most of the effort looking at the historic circumstance that brought this conflict to the forefront. And I began really in medieval times outlining the development of the nation that we now call Russian, Russia, outlining eventually the development of a, uh, an, an ethnic group that became known as Ukrainian, which came later, and then of course outlining the development in, the 19, in, in 1990, 1991, the breaking up of the old Soviet Union into na separate uh, political units, nations, and the consequence of all of that, <clears throat> and the sum and substance of all of that historic analysis really comes to a very simple thought. This is a complicated background. The background of this conflict, conflict is long, <laughs> complex, and is not something that anyone on this planet is going to rapidly unravel in a way that will make everybody happy. That simply will not occur. Which then leads you to draw certain practical conclusions that I would argue suggest that those who are not involved in the argument are unlikely to involve, under, understand the emotional qualities, the historic grievances suggests that those who do not have an understanding of that and cannot really have an understanding of that or an appreciation of that ought not to be involved. Yeah. So from a purely pragmatic point of view, <laughs> I was arguing that the United States should not have, does not have a national interest or a distinct rationale to suggest that we're going to fix a festering problem that literally is centuries in the making on the other side of the planet in the middle of a landmass called Eurasia yeah. where things have always been rather tumultuous. Thank you. <laughs> Nonetheless, <laughs> as time marches forward and we look at the world we live in and we consider all the various political pressures and philosophical worldviews and economic manipulation and political manipulation and, and idealism and naivete and so forth and so on that we can discuss. There are, of course, many people in, this, in our country right now in the United States of America who have some real uh, strong interests in our being involved one way or another. And typically, they fall mostly, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on the idea that we ought to favor the Ukrainians and throw a great deal of our economic support and possibly even more than just economic support on the side of the Ukrainians. So we're going to talk about uh, this particular war, and we're going to talk about a little bit about war in general, and we're going to look a little bit at Scripture, look a little bit at history, 
and we'll kind of come back to the war in Ukraine itself and just have a general, I'll, I'll share you my general thoughts <laughs> about what might be a good way to look at this conflict. And I, 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 I'm inclined to think that many of us might end up at the same conclusion, maybe for different reasons, uh, but, but uh, I'll give you my estimation, and so here we go. We'll just kind of have a chat this afternoon. I'll talk at you guys for a while, and then when I'm done, then you guys can, uh, you all are free to ask questions of me or one another, or stand up and give your own little dissertation if you care to, and uh, eventually we'll all peter out and go home. <laughs> it's not as though the world is dying to know what you and I think about it. We know better than that, but it's, uh, it might be of some value for us, for our, for our own purposes, to, to consider some of these things. I'd like to start with this, this sort of a question. Um, the question could be phrased something like this. I, I do have an outline, and I, sometimes I'm able to prepare outlines, but I didn't get one for you guys. So if you're an outline person, you'll just have to do the best you can and without it. So the question could be asked, uh, who should we support in this war, if we should support one side? Who should we support? And what is the basis of our evaluating that question? If you're going to decide who should we support, that question could be asked of many different wars. Who should we support, if we should support someone at all? And what's the basis of evaluating whether or not you ought to support a given side in a given war, in a given conflict? What is our basis of evaluation? What is our basis upon which we're going to answer that question? So one of the things that is a kind of a dominant theme in American history, and you see this today still, the United States of America has a tendency to be a nation of uh, idealists. Now, we began our nation as high idealists, and our ideals were essentially strongly biblical. The Puritans were idealistic, if nothing. They were idealistic. And the idea or the notion that we ought to have lofty concepts about how the world ought to be is rooted deeply in the American character. That is not true for every other country in the world. Many nations in the world have a different way of looking at the world and looking at life. And it doesn't necessarily involve lofty, abstract ideas. But the United States always has and still does. What has changed, though, is the basis of our idealism. The Puritan idealism, which is really deeply imprinted, that thought of idealism is deeply imprinted on the American character, has shifted instead of a, a biblical idealism, we have idealism that is built from some other source. But we're still idealistic. Thus, we have uh, environmentalists who are very idealistic about how we ought to solve what they believe are important problems. And then we have a certain strain of, 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 of uh, on, on, on the far left that is not really environmental, but is maybe social, this con these concepts of social justice. And they're, they're very lofty in their idealism about how they think the world ought to be. And that didn't grow out of nowhere. It was really, they maintained the idea that, the, the notion that we need to have idealistic... <laughs> 
answers to practical problems. We're just not going to use the Bible as our model. We're going to use a different model. But we're going to maintain this, this, this approach to life that says we've got to work in the abstract up here to make heaven on earth. <laughs> Other nations don't labor with that. They're not really trying to make heaven on earth. They're just trying to get by. And they're not an idealistic nation. So, because we are an idealistic nation, many, many of us lurch to this particular question. We're going to ask ourselves which side in, in a particular conflict is more morally virtuous. And in this particular war, that question is constantly before us in the media. Which of these two nations which of these two sides is more morally virtuous? And we are constantly being fed a diet that says that Russia is morally repugnant and the Ukrainians are morally virtuous because of their status as a victim. The Russians are the aggressors. Putin is a mean fellow, nasty man, bad guy and so forth and so on for a variety of descriptions involving Putin as a bad man, and the Russians in general as mean and nasty and rough, and they rape and they pillage and they plunder and they kill children and they kidnap children, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. And many of, that, many of those claims, they might be true. Maybe mostly true. And then the case is made that the Ukrainians are victims and they are morally virtuous. Which I think is largely false. But I guess I would give them some sense of victimhood status. They were the ones invaded, so we'll grant them that. But the notion that they are morally virtuous and without corruption and without <laughs> any moral blemishes, ethical blemishes, I think is not really a fair assessment of who the Ukrainians are, particularly the Ukrainian leadership and the Ukrainian government, yes. which is probably every bit as corrupt, in my humble opinion, as the Russian government. Mm -hmm. So, but is that, should that even be our basis of, of questioning? Does it matter which side is morally virtuous in this particular conflict? Should it matter? Should, are we obligated to defend the side that is more morally virtuous or is that question completely irrelevant? Now, I would throw out the idea, and I think, I think I can make a case for this, that from our point of view, where we're sitting at, in our circumstance, that really is irrelevant. Yes, exactly. Who's more morally virtuous is not a question that should matter to you and I in terms of our involvement. It, it, it could be an interesting question to explore for dinner conversation, yeah. but in terms of us rushing to the side that is thus the victim and, it, and has greater moral virtue, that's a different question and completely. So I'm just going to throw out as, as a point, I don't think moral virtue in this case is the question that really should be on the table. Which side is more morally virtuous? Second, it could be asked, and we hear a lot about this, which side has a better historic claim to the land? Now, I've discussed that at actually rather great length 
last time I had a discussion on this topic. And the answer is that's, that's not an easy question to answer at all. Which side has a better historic claim to the land? So I, I personally think that should be put off to the side. And, but you could go a step further. Does that really matter anyway to us? It might matter to them, but does that matter to us? Considering where we are, who we are, where they are, and the fact that they are on the far side of the planet, in the center of a Eurasian landmass that, as has been articulated, has always been tumultuous. Is that even really an important question to ask? That do we need to, to, to go down that road and worry about that a great deal? Well, maybe, but not. I'd say in many respects that might also be irrelevant. Something that could be maybe a little more relevant, I, I think, could be argued. You might ask this question, which I think you and I might have some sympathy for, you might say, well, which side are our ethnic brothers or our cultural brothers in a sense that they should command greater loyalty? We should have greater loyalty to them because of some his, uh, ethnic or cultural, linguistic, racial bond. That could be a fair question, I think. Maybe could be relevant. So if we were going to apply that question to, say, World War II, I would probably, at the end of a long chat, to say I think maybe it would be a, a, a hard case to say that our involvement in the European portion of World War II was a good idea. I would, like, I would suggest that was probably a bad idea. Yeah. It would have been probably better just to let, uh, you know, England and France and, and Britain, they can just duke it out over there and, 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 and we'll stay on our side of the Atlantic. Maybe you could argue we have some loyalty Toward, the, toward England or the English, as an English-speaking nation, but to what ex should that be to the extent of involvement? No, I probably would argue that. Also in World War II, though, I would say perhaps we might have had some compelling reason to go to war with Japan. After all, they did attack our sovereign territory in the Hawaiian Islands, and so what alternative do you have? And particularly since they are not our ethnic or racial kinsmen, and they are, at that point in their history and time, they were certainly culturally quite alien to us in many respects. Uh, we might really have had very little alternative but to defend our Pacific territories, and thus off we go to war whether we like it or not. A fourth question, though. In the case of, well, back to that third question. Which side are our ethnic brothers? Do we have some, something there commanding our loyalty? In the case of the Ukrainian war, I think we have nothing there. <laughs> the, I mean, dividing out the difference between an Ukrainian and a Russian, racially, ethnically, genetically, is almost impossible. And it is certainly uh, just about as hard when you come to a cultural background or a linguistic background even. Um, the long and short of it is they know the difference it, and the difference to them is important. But you and I can hardly tell the difference, if at all. So the answer to that question is no. I don't think we have any compelling uh, uh, ethnic or racial bond that we need to remain loyal to in this war. So this takes us to another line of thinking. <clears throat> Are there any rules of war out there that should help us, that could help us? And that's going to take us now to the Bible, because it turns out that the Bible has certain rules of war. And I'd like all of you to take a few minutes and read with me. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we'll spend a few minutes in this chapter 
and see what we can learn about the biblical rules of war and see if, any, if there's any guiding principles whatsoever out of this. I think there might be a few guiding principles that could be helpful to us. So let's go to Deuteronomy 20, and we're going to look at the rules of war according to Scripture, and perhaps there's a few conclusions that might be useful. There might be many, but I'll, I'll draw a few. All right, let's, uh, re- let's go to this chapter, and we're going to start in chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, and we'll just read the whole chapter. And if you don't mind, uh, I will read. I'll read every verse, and if you all would like to, why don't you read with me on the, uh, the even-numbered verses. You all read 2 and 4 and so forth. Alternatively, and you can rest on the odd-numbered verses, but I'll, I'll probably just read them all to make sure they get into the microphone that's uh, on, on my lapel here. So here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 20, the whole chapter, 1 through 20. Here we go. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies... And seest horses and chariots, and the people more than thou, be not thou afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be, when ye are come nigh into the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day into battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is He that will goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed the wife, and hath not taken her? Let him go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further into the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return into his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his officers. And it shall be when the officers have made an end of the speaking unto the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people." And when thou comest nigh into a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make thee an answer of peace and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword." little children's cattle and all that is in the city even all the spoil thereof thou shalt take unto thyself and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies which the Lord thy God hath given thee thus thou shalt do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee which are not of the cities of these nations cities of these people which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. They teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So should ye sin against the Lord your God. When thou shalt besiege a city in a long time, in making war against it to take it, thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them. 
for thou mayest eat of them, and thou shalt not cut them down, for the tree of the field is a man's life, to employ them in the siege. Only the trees which thou knowest, that they be not trees for meat, that shalt thou destroy and cut them down. And thou shalt make bulwarks against the city that maketh war with thee, until it be subdued. Now, in my view, uh, there are several principles out of this chapter that are useful for our discussion today. Not all of these are probably directly applicable. But I'd like to call your attention to the first portion of this chapter as we consider verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now you'll notice, when the military force is being developed, you'll notice, first of all, that everyone, every man who has any reasonable excuse to go home is permitted to do so. You're permitted to go home if you build a new house. You're permitted to go home if you have recently planted a vineyard. And by extension, that would perhaps might extend to other things, perhaps an orchard. So you have something that you're doing at home that's important to you. Or if you have recently gotten married or are about to get married. And finally, in verse 8, if those weren't enough excuses, all you have to do is say, I just really don't want to fight because I'm a little bit afraid of this. Basically, anyone who doesn't want to fight can go home. Can you see that in verses 5 through 8? Pretty much you don't have to have a very particular... If you want a reason to get out of this war, you can probably find one. Now that tells us something rather important. It tells us that... The, the rules of warfare in ancient Israel were essentially what we would call a voluntary, a voluntary force. These were, there was no, there was, the, Israel was not meant, and we could go to the uh, rules that apply to the kings to verify this in Deuteronomy 17. Israel was never meant to have what today is called in recent centuries a standing army. That is a permanent military force. American history, throughout most of our history, really did not have a standing army. The only time we had military forces that were capable of major military operations was when the war had, was already upon us. And then the military forces would be gathered together, the training would commence, and we'd go out to war. And when the war was concluded, everyone would basically go home and we'd go back to another tiny skeleton force that didn't amount to anything. This was true from the beginning with the American War of Independence. This was true in the War of 1812. This was true of the Mexican War of the 1840s. This was true of the American Civil War. This was true of the uh, short uh, Spanish-American War, and this was true of the long and bloody, but also uh, uh, war that finally came to an end for us, World War I. At the end of every single one of those engagements, our military shrank back to a very small force. During several of those, our military forces grew to very, ex very extensively, but then they shrank. So that, in that respect, I think we were at least within the spirit of what these verses are telling us. When there was support for the war, then it, we went forth. And when the war was concluded, that is, when the support for the war evaporated, 
we all went home. That meant that the war could not be carried on without the political support of the population. That's what that meant. If this population was not completely and overwhelmingly, or shall we say largely in favor of it, the war could not be prosecuted. That changed at the end of World War II. Since World War II, the United States has operated in a different paradigm in which we have a, we have had, ever since then, we have had a, a large standing military force. One of the largest, if not the largest, military forces in the world ever since then. And that, of course, has enabled us to do things that we otherwise would not be able to politically accomplish. That enabled us to become involved in wars that did not have popular political support. It enabled us to stay in conflicts that lost political support. The political support had to be maintained. So, on these particular principles we might derive from Deuteronomy 20, my understanding of what God has in mind for a biblical nation is this. A biblical nation is not going to have a large standing permanent military to speak of. It's only going to ramp up in wartime and it's going to go back down and it's only going to be maintained in that war as long as the people want the war to continue. As soon as the the, 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 the general population say, we're tired of this. Yeah. People, the soldiers go home. Yeah. I don't want to fight. Hey, you go home. You don't want to fight, you go home. Hey, I'm thinking about getting married. We'll go home. Got a girlfriend back home. I want to get married. Go home. Got a crops to plant. Go home. I'm tired of fighting. I don't want to die. Fine. Go home. All right, so that tells us something else then. It tells us that really the only kind of a war that's going to maintain popular support is essentially going to be a defensive war. Only wars that are defensive in nature or perceived or perceived as defensive in nature are going to be able to maintain popular support. Only when there is a threat that is maintained will that war effort be maintained. It also means that an empire based on military force is going to be virtually impossible to pursue. God did not encourage, foster, plan, and purpose for Israel to be vast empire-building people. Now, when I say, now that, some of these things run contrary to the pride and spirit of our people. Because as a conservative, I grew up most of my life thinking that based on sort of a Ronald Reagan doctrine that the best military uh, you could have is a great big powerful one so you can smash your opponent at any moment. But I'm not sure that that is based on Deuteronomy 20 or based on Deuteronomy 17, the cautions to the kings telling them not to multiply horses. I'm not sure that's a biblical doctrine or a biblical way of thinking. And I think that modern conservatism has left Scripture, whereas our forefathers would have said, hey, we do our fighting, win the war, and then we are done. The idea of an empire, it's not for Israel, a military a empire based on military force. 
that does tend to run counter to some of the things we even take pride in. We even take pride in the British Empire. Well, you know, the British Empire could be analyzed in this respect. The British Empire uh, had a less smaller military footprint than you might think. But it does question whether or not God really wants our people to operate in these frames of mind. And I tend to think that he does not. It makes foreign wars unlikely and difficult. Perhaps not impossible. But under the circumstances that we've just read, how many foreign wars would the United States have fought if our armies, if our soldiers had the privilege in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8? If they had the privilege of applying verse 5, 6, 7, or 8 to their involvement in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, or elsewhere, probably those wars wouldn't have been fought, or if they had been fought, they'd been fought quick, and we would have been in, we would have wrapped it up, and we would have come home rather quickly. We wouldn't have been in any of them for 10 years, or as in Afghanistan, for 20 years. So, you know, these, these are basic principles that political leaders ought to be thinking about if they're biblically minded, but of course, for decades now, we don't. We haven't. We haven't for 70 or 80 years. In terms of rules of war, there's another thought, school of thought, though. And this goes to the medieval concept of rules of war. And it goes back to a gentleman named Thomas Aquinas, who was really the prime mover and shaker in developing what was considered just war theory. And just war theory had four major components. I thought I'd just share these with you. Some of you maybe recognize these. A just war is when the aggressor inflicts damage that is lasting, grave, and certain. That means, essentially, a just war is defensive in nature. Number two, all other means of ending it have been shown to be ineffective. That means the diplomats have worked very, very hard to do their best to bring a peaceful solution. Third, there must be serious prospects of success. And fourth, the use of the weaponry must not produce evils or disorders graver than the evil that is being eliminated. Now, I suppose if we applied Thomas Aquinas' just war theory to the war in Ukraine, number one says the aggressor must be inflicting damage that is lasting, grave, and certain. Well, from the point of view of a Ukrainian, he might say, well, uh, we meet that one. Those Russians are after us, and they're going to produce lasting damage to our little country, Ukraine. Okay, we'll give them that one. I'll give them that one. All other means of putting it to an end must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Well, I'm not sure that one is, was really, I'm not sure that tree was shaken very hard by the international community. I'm not sure that the energy put into to preventing the war, I'm not sure that those uh, nations and leaders of the, of the West really put their muscle to it to try to keep this war from occurring. I don't think that the leaders of France, England, Germany, the leaders of NATO, or certainly the Biden administration, put a lot of energy into preventing this war. 
It does seem that perhaps Mr. Trump may have. And it's a little hard for us to know, of course, what goes on behind the scenes. But the evidence, in my opinion, is putting an end to it before it starts, that effort was not a serious effort. Which tells you something's wrong about this war, doesn't it? Third, there must be a serious prospect of success. Well, that, of course, is hard to evaluate before a war begins. And it may, in fact, be hard to evaluate even as the war is unfolding. But we perhaps are reaching a point in this particular war where a serious prospect of success is looking kind of grim. More on that later. And finally, the use of arms must not produce evil and disorder graver than the, that which you're trying to eliminate. Well, in my opinion, that has not been met because you can count on this. When this war is over, it's not really over. So one day the shooting will stop. But all of the grievances that existed to cause the shooting to begin will still be there, only magnified and festered and deeper rooted in the hearts and the minds of the people that live in that part of the world. And they're only going to make the prospect of another round greater, at least in my view. So when it comes to evaluating this particular war in terms of uh, Scripture and saying, should the United States be involved in this war, we do not meet the biblical test, in my opinion, by any country mile. This is not the kind of war that can be biblically defended, in my opinion. And I think we do not go very far down the road of meeting Thomas Aquinas' just war theory, either. So, we could ask another question. To what extent are we being manipulated? Well, it appears that we're being manipulated a great deal. The evidence before us that we're getting an objective evaluation of the war in any respect is very the evidence is that we are not in fact prior to this war it was difficult to find uh, an opinion in any major publication or any media stream that 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 was not in favor of supporting the ukrainians prior to the war uh, and, and on that point there was very little in the way of oh let's have a let, let, let's have, a, let's have a, uh, a meeting of the great diplomats of the world to see if we can stop it before it starts. Did that happen? Not that I'm aware of. No. Did the major European nations that do have a lot of resources, did the Prime Minister of England and the Chancellor of Germany and the President of France, did they get together and say, let's have a great diplomatic summit with Ukraine and Russia and let's see if we can resolve this peacefully before it starts that did not occur not that i am aware of might it have worked i don't know but at least according to thomas aquinas it's worth a shot and i would say to any fair-minded person with a sense of uh, ethics and morality you say yeah well sure that's that's the right thing to do but that didn't occur because that didn't occur and because there was no uh, in my view, the, the, there was no objective debate in the media, no objective evaluation in the media prior to the war, and there's certainly very little objective information that we can obtain now easily about the war 
This is all one-sided, almost, almost all one-sided, that is. You've got to answer this question, are, are we being manipulated with, a, 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 I think, a, a resounding yes. We are being a, a re, definitely manipulated. At least the, the attempt is being made. I'm grateful that some of the instincts of, of many Americans is, 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 yeah, I think we're being manipulated. <laughs> you know, I think, I think the, 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 the effort to, to uh, wrangle us deeper into this conflict is having less success than what they would have hoped. Those that are in favor of our involvement are finding it harder to persuade the population in this country to get involved. And so American instincts aren't entirely bad in this respect. If they just raise their eyebrow and just say, look, I just don't think, I think there's more to the story, and they're right. There surely is more to the story. So we are being manipulated. I would also add this, though. We need to remember something about God and the sovereignty of God, and the sovereignty of God among nations. It's my inclination to, to argue, would argue that there is a strong collusion of interests that find our involvement in the war pleasing. I believe there's a powerful banking interest that, of course, is backed by many Jewish money, money people. It is a powerful Jewish cabal that finds war very profitable. War has always been among the most profitable of enterprises if you have the ability to tap into it. Now, there's a military-industrial complex, of course, that has been with us for decades, and of course they have much to gain. There are globalists who have certain agendas. I think they have something to gain. So I think there's a, a lot of extent to which we're uh, being manipulated. Uh, I would add this, though, and I would add, ask all of you to consider the sovereignty of God. Amen. You know, it, it, there's another truism that you see in history. Now, I've spent a lot of time over the years. I enjoy history, and I've read a lot of history. I've read a lot of military history, and, and I could probably chat with most of you on a lot of different wars and conflicts. It's a topic that's interesting to me. I don't know if it's always useful, but like, you know, a lot of men enjoy that sort of thing. In fact, as a teacher, I've noticed boys love to talk about war. They might not know diddly squat about it, but they find it all kind of fascinate, fascinating. <laughs> so, um, war is unpredictable. It is exceptionally unpredictable. It is probably the most unpredictable human activity on a large scale that you can find. And there is example after example in world history of wars unfolding in a way that are completely different yes. than what the antagonist thought. Amen. Completely different. Amen. And very often, wars end finally with consequences that neither side anticipated. And had they anticipated it, they would have tried much harder never to have fought it. And furthermore, wars typically don't really solve problems very well. You may end with a winner and a loser, 
but it's only a relative degree. There are many, many examples of winners in war that suffered dramatic losses from that war. And we only have to look at uh, the example of our dear brothers over there in England who fought two world wars over the course of 25 years, between 1918 and 1945, sorry, 1914 to 1945. So in the span of about 30 years, they lost an entire empire that took their ancestors 400 years to build. And they won both wars. They were on the winning side of both. But the consequences of winning were so severe that they lost their empire in half a lifetime, what took 400 years to build. So I'm not here to debate the merits of empire building or empire loss. I'm just pointing out the unpredictability of war as a general rule. Now that means that when we think about those who have greater power than we, when we think about those who have agendas, and they're powerful agendas, and they're, these, are, these are people with great influence in the world, we think about the great bankers of our time. And we think about the, the globalists of our time. Whether it's the World Economic Forum or, it's, or, 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 or whatever particular cabal that we would like to discuss. I want to remind you that none of these cabals are sovereign. None. They are not sovereign. Now, too often in our thinking, we presume that they are. They never have been, and they never will be. Now, they have a lot more power than you and me. And they have a strong agenda. And they do see some successes in, in pushing their agenda forward. But they are not sovereign. And when it comes to war, the sovereignty of God always prevails and it often unfolds in ways that are entirely unpredictable to the antagonists that are involved in terms of what they hope to achieve. So I'll just read you a few passages from Scripture. And in fact, I would encourage you to look at this. These are three short passages out of the Bible that are going to remind us of the sovereignty of God among nations. I'd like to start in Isaiah chapter 40. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40 begins with a rhetorical question about God. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or meted out the heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? It's saying, who has measured how big the ocean is, how much the dust weighs, how heavy is that mountain? Who has done all of that? And the answer, of course, God has done all of that. Verse 13, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor, hath taught Him? Or in Missouri talk, is there anything that somebody can teach God? <laughs> is Klaus Schwab going to teach God a lesson? <laughs> what a joke. Well, he's probably smarter than me, but... 
Verse 14, With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who was God's teacher? That's the question. The answer is no one. Then it goes on to say in verse 15, Behold, the nations are, a, are as a drop in the, a bucket, and are counted as small dust in the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Verse 16, And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Verse 17, notice, All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him as less than nothing in vanity. <laughs> now, if that does not persuade you, let me read from you from Daniel. Because you're a good Bible student, you'll probably recognize these words rather quickly. In Daniel chapter number 4, we have this, a story in here dealing with a gentleman named Nebuchadnezzar. And you might recall Nebuchadnezzar at one point lost his mind yes. <laughs> and for quite some time is eating grass like an ox. Now prior to that occurrence in verse 17 of Daniel 4, it tells us that God is getting ready to teach Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. And verse 17 is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn. It says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers. That's the angels. They watch us. And the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. That means the lowest of men. And verse 35. At the end of this experience, Nebuchadnezzar has these words to say. Nebuchadnezzar himself said this. He said, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Amen. Now, the sovereignty of God is important. Now, that leads us to a sort of a question that I would pose. The, the, the question is really before us as we consider our little small role in all of these matters is what should we think about the war? That is to say, what should we as Americans think about the war? What should, as, as a group of people here in the United States of America, what should our, uh, what, what should our opinion be? And I think one of the things that we have to reckon with is that, is it possible that we are suffering from our own rebellion against God's Word? Is it possible that we, as a nation, are suffering from our own rebellion against God's Word? Now, when George Washington left office, and in his final bit of counsel, said that we ought to avoid foreign entanglements, was that thought biblical wisdom or biblical foolishness? It was biblical wisdom. Not because 
George Washington was a Bible-thumping preacher. It was simply because he was the product of a biblical culture that was familiar with scriptural principles, and it was intuitively obvious based on his own education as a boy, as a youth, and as a young man, and all of the other people around him that grew up in a biblically-oriented culture, that this was intuitively obvious. If he didn't go around quoting Deuteronomy, there were plenty of others who did. And I assure you that he was aware and conscious of the words in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that warn Israel about things like standing armies, putting your faith in your military forces, about foreign wars, about creating empires to the vanity of man. Now, believe me, sometimes I take great pride in the thought that the English-speaking people have great armies and navies. But should I? Is that the vanity of man? Is that the vanity of man who says, look at this great aircraft carrier that we have, and you poor slobs don't. Look at the world map that's all color-coded in our favor. Is that the vanity of man that takes pride in that? Human pride and vanity is a very slippery thing. And I think that there is a large element of that that operates within our own lives and within conservatism in the United States of America and has been operating since the end of World War II when our biblical worldview slipped when we began to think that we deserve this and that and thus around the planet because we are uh, great and mighty people. Well, you know, I, I, I think perhaps there's an element of pride that's appropriate, but it's awfully easy to slip into, a, into an element of pride and vanity that is unbiblical and is hard to defend against the words of Scripture. I think, in my view, that we're suffering from our own rebellion against God's Word. And I think we have for a long time. And I think our, the foreign wars of our time and of our forefathers, the foreign wars of the last 75 years, are not a blessing. They're a curse. And they're a curse of our own making. Our ancestors would have been wiser they would have been more considered. Now it's true, God's blessings bring power, they bring wealth. That power and wealth may extend beyond the borders of our nation. That power and wealth may need a certain amount of defense. But the pride and vanity that goes with saying, we have a global empire, we have a role as the world policeman, we have the duty and the ability to solve every problem around the planet. That is a rather heady brew to men who sit in positions of power. Men who have titles that place them at the head of state or at the head of mighty armies that allow them to say, 
we can project our power to the far corners of the planet and we can impose our will on other people and we can fix problems and we can make your life better over there. You guys who are in that little Bedouin hut, we can improve your life. Oh, you've got a little border problem over there in some Eastern European country that nobody can pronounce? We can help you fix that. Yeah, all of that it might be well intended. That's not really, I'm not here to, you know, to deeply challenge motives, which are probably a variety of motives that are functioning in, in the leaders of our nation. But the, beyond the question of, of whether their motives might be sincere or well intended isn't really the question. The question is, do they conform with any sense of biblical wisdom? And in my view, they don't conform with a sense of biblical wisdom, and we've really been on the wrong track for a long time. And it's a slippery slope, and it's an easy mistake to make because many good conservative Christian people have made this mistake and continue to make it to this very day. We have a missionary zeal that I think is misplaced. I'd like to shift gears here. Um, I'd like to consider some practical considerations now. We've done some sort of a abstract evaluation. I'd like to consider some practical considerations. I think I'm getting a little bit warm, so I'll take my jacket off. Let's start with um, the first practical consideration, setting aside some of these abstract ideas. I guess I better take, reclip this here. I can figure out a good way to do that. The first practical consideration is, is simply the plight of Ukraine in terms of its people. Some people may not be aware of the staggering population decline of that country and what that's meant for, the, for Ukraine. Now, of course, if you compare the population of the Ukraine before the war began to what it is right now, that's a little difficult to do because you've got to decide what were the actual borders of Ukraine when the war began. Did those borders include Crimea or did they include the Donbass or did they not include Crimea and the Donbass and so forth and so on? Anyway, the long and short of it is this. The Ukraine is suffering a severe population decline. Severe, severe. The population of Ukraine prior to the war, or rather if we roll back to say in the 1990s, the population of the nation of Ukraine was around 50 million people. The population of, of Ukraine now stands at most, depends, I've tried to research this out, at most about 30 million people. So where did all the people go? Well, most of that decline has been in the last couple of years. Much of that decline. And you have many people who have fled the Ukraine to the West and have no intention of going back, at least five or six million there. You have some who actually have gone to Russia. There's a debate about whether they went there willingly or not, but I don't have the answer to that question. Because remember, some of the Ukrainian population is Russian speaking. So it's not quite as, as crystal clear as a us versus them sort of thing as we might be led to believe. So, but the end of it is, if this war does continue as a practical consideration, the country of Ukraine is being slowly depopulated and may very well be a wasteland. And considering the power that Russia has but has not used, they very well may be pushed to a point where they say, if we can't have it, nobody's gonna. And there may be, they may just say, all right, um, it's going to be scorched earth. And we might just even use nuclear warheads. We might just depopulate. This country may, if we can't have it, nobody gets it. 
Well, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's worth considering. Uh, there's been quite a bit of research done uh, and a lot of debate trying to figure out actual troop losses. There's a lot of lying going on here, in my opinion, by the media regarding troop losses. The Ukrainian government does not release uh, data, and so it has to be inferred from other sources. And the Russians don't release as much as you would like, but they do release some numbers, but are probably not true. Near as I can tell, which may not be right, it does appear that Russia has lost uh, maybe somewhere around 200,000 men in casualties, uh, probably about a third of them, uh, 20, 20 to 30 percent in, in fatalities and the, about 70 percent in terms of just, just physically maimed. And Ukraine has lost somewhere maybe around half that. Of course, those, I have, those are just numbers that I'm pulling off the internet, and so I don't have great access to information. But the long and short of it is, on this particular point, um, the manpower problem is, is serious for both, but it's becoming very grave for Ukraine. Ukraine is reaching a manpower shortage in which they have recently extended the conscription, the potential conscription age from 18 to 60. Yeah. 60. That even gets guys my age <laughs> would be fall into that. And so, you know, men in their 50s aren't, don't necessarily make the best soldiers when you have to, well, you know, it's no more, you're actually camping instead of glamping, right? <laughs> All right. Um, but that tells you that the manpower shortage in Ukraine is pretty severe. They're having all kinds of recruitment problems. And just from a practical nature, the Ukrainians really have stand a, a very real possibility of running out of the kind of manpower that, to sustain the war, which means, if, which begs the question, if the war is going to be sustained, where's that manpower going to come from? Does that mean it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, troops from the West? In terms of weaponry, there's a few points that can be made. I don't know how many of you are interested in this. Artillery is a key element in this particular war. It's actually been a really a key element of most wars, most land wars since large cannons have been developed and utilized in, in World War I and forward. But the Russians have an artillery dominance of somewhere between three to one, maybe as much as eight or nine or 10 to one. But the Russians have a very heavy artillery dominance. The Russians have a dominance in the new technology of drones as well. They simply have more of them and a greater variety of them. The Russians have a larger military industrial complex. So in producing conventional ordinary type weapons like drones or, or artillery shells or landmines and stuff, stuff like that, the Russians have a much greater capacity to produce that material than Ukraine and the West. The West tends to go for high dollar exotic military equipment, whereas the Russians are content to do a lot of ordinary stuff like landmines and <laughs> artillery shells. The nature of the war um, has produced a different kind of fight. Now, Ukraine does have some sophisticated weaponry from the West. Uh, some of their drone technology is pretty good. Some of their um, some of their missile technology is pretty good. The Russians have a larger air force, which they have been unable to utilize to the degree they would like, largely because the surface-to-air missiles that Ukraine has available 
are pretty sophisticated. And it's apparent, basically, it's pretty easy to knock something out of the air if you want to. Something that's large, like an airplane or a helicopter. Unless it's going at supersonic speed, of course. Um, I haven't really talked about this, but, you know, uh, there is a, a, you know, an emotional quality. I've tried to do a little bit of reading in this area. The Ukrainians are giving it a good fight. The Ukrainians really hate the Russians. When I say the Ukrainians, I mean those that are ethnic Ukrainians, linguistic Ukrainians, the ones whose families have been there for a couple of generations and who can reach back in time to World War II and World War I and the Russian Civil War at the end of World War I, who's, who have uh, heard stories from their grandparents and great-grandparents. The Ukrainians do have a lot of zeal, and they have a lot of true hatred, true hatred and fear. And fear is a very powerful motivator. Now, I have no doubt that the Russians have, have, by this time, have got a pretty strong element of dislike for the Ukrainian people, too, because that's what wars do. Wars increase hatred. They don't decrease hatred. And that hatred becomes multiplied with the passing of time and even over the generations. And that's one reason why in this fallen world, if you know much about military history, it's not glamour. It's, it's organized murder. Yes. And that organized murder produces bitterness and hatred that lasts a long, long time. Generational hatred. The Ukrainians are loaded with it. And that's why some of them, <laughs> they might really rather die than be dominated by the Russians. And I'm not here to judge them. They've got their grievances. Their grievances might be real. But going back to where we were at the beginning, to what extent is that my business or yours? To what extent is that a basis for me to say, I need thus, therefore, to get involved with my sons and my daughters, or my dollars for that matter. To what extent could I fix that hatred? And the answer keeps coming back, we cannot fix that hatred. And it is naivete to believe that we can. It might be naivete to say that... <laughs> that um, Well, it might be naive to think that it's going to solve itself. It's not. But it's also, I think, foolish to think that we're going to really help. Now, the nature of this warfare is immobile. We're at a point in, in the history of warfare over the centuries, if you like this sort of thing, you can see over time there is an offensive and a defensive development in warfare over time. This goes way back even to medieval times in which you have an offensive weapon is developed and then a defensive uh, uh, system is developed to counter the offensive advantage and neutralize it. For example, if you enjoy medieval warfare, the English developed the longbow, a, 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 a very interesting, dangerous offensive weapon, which dominated for about 40 or 50 years until the French developed tactics and weaponry in defensive systems to counter the longbow, which was heavier armor, and ultimately guns. <laughs> and guns and gunpowder proved to be better than the longbow. 
And then the, there was, a, in, in terms of gunpowder, you had the development, of course, of, uh, of cannons. And up until the development of large cannons, castles were essentially unassailable. Many castles were built. Why were so many castles built in Europe? It's because they were so effective at, 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 at protecting the people on the inside. Until cannons came along. And you knocked down the wall with the cannon. But the cannons didn't reign supreme. They didn't reign supreme because eventually other uh, weaponry was developed to counterbalance the offensive weaponry of, of cannons. When the airplane was invented, it was developed. It, was, it became a very dominant offensive weapon until the development of the, now we see the surface-to-air missile, which keeps all the planes grounded. Well, right now, this war has something that's new that other wars haven't had to any significant quantity, and that is the drone. <laughs> the pesky little drone, which can be thrown out there for observation and can be thrown out for advancement. Essentially what is done is it's driven uh, the, each side to develop defensive networks that have created a very, very static, immobile war. So there have been a lot of comparisons, which are probably apt, comparing the Ukraine war to World War I. In World War I, you had the development of offensive weapons that drove men into the ground. The machine gun, you had offensive weapons that were designed to, to, uh, to break through the trench networks, the famous trench networks of World War I, like mustard gas and so forth. That was meant to try to get those guys hiding in those little trenches back there. Well, it didn't ever really work very well, but the effort was made. Well, the present condition is that you have an immobile war in which you have trench networks that are not merely a couple hundred yards deep, like World War I, but are defensive networks that are maybe 12, 15, 20 miles deep. And the front line is not here or over there a hundred yards or even over there half a mile. The front line is this amorphous region that may be 20 or 30 miles wide. You may be 30 miles behind the front line and yet be under attack. Yeah. It's because of the drone technology that, and that flies over the enemy territory and looks around and targets this guy and then they send in a missile or send in a, uh, a round of artillery or whatever it is. So you've got an immobile war. Now what does that mean for the war as a whole? It means this is likely to be a long war. It's likely to be a war of attrition. It's likely to be a war that's going to be difficult to have a breakthrough in a rapid winter, which means that if nothing changes, if we keep feeding Ukraine and the Russians keep holding their own, then this war is just going to go on and on. outflanking is virtually impossible. Breakthroughs are, so far, every breakthrough has resulted in encirclement. This is unlike World War II. For you guys who are into World War II and you think of the German Blitzkrieg and the tanks go zooming on through, right? Everybody's heard of that. Well, none of that here. Tanks don't make their breakthroughs, zoom on through to the, to the tender parts behind the lines and and uh, then just uh, take over the situation and the whole front collapses and the whole battle, this massive battle is over in two weeks. No, there's not gonna be a, 
like the fall of France in 1940 in 30 days. That's not going to occur. What's going to occur is that there's going to be an interminable war It's likely to carry on for a long, long time. Both sides view this war as existential. Neither side's about to give up. Seems that the Russians probably have the advantage in a war of attrition. The Western European nations are a little ho-hum about their support. The Eastern European nations are all in. They've got their own reasons for not trusting the Russians. If I was a Pole, I would feel the same way. I would say, I don't want those Russians anywhere near me. And I'm willing to do what I can to, to keep that war out there so it doesn't come anywhere closer to me. But I'm not a Pole. I'm an American. If I was a German or Italian, I'm not sure what I'd think. But the fact is, the Western European powers of Germany, France, England, and Italy, and the countries who do have a some economic resources, yeah, they'll help a little bit. They'll send them their leopard tanks that are 25 years old, (laughs) that are becoming obsolete already, sure. To what extent they're really in it, I don't know, but it seems to me that it's pretty intuitively obvious. If the Europeans aren't in this, um, that, 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 that shouts volumes about their real fear. I do not think that the Germans are really worried that the Russians might be marching on the streets of Berlin. And I really don't think that the Italians are worried that the Russians might break through and be marching in the streets of Rome. They know that that's not likely. Whatever happens to the Ukraine. At any rate, it's time for me to draw a few conclusions so you guys can have a chance to uh, ask questions. But... In my opinion, the United States has a very, very weak biblical basis for intervention. Very weak. From a biblical point of view, this is a probably among the weakest of arguments that you could make of all the foreign wars we fought in the last 50 or 60 years. This is probably one of the poorest cases to be made. Absolute poorest cases to be made. The United States has a weak moral basis for involvement by any other standard, if we consider the just war theory. Our involvement is a result of manipulation by cabals who have overlapping interests and their own selfish interests and our involvement to some degree is really a result of our own ignorance of God's word it's the kind of involvement I think our ancestors would have would have uh, instinctively reacted from rather quickly and said this is foolishness why in the world would we want to get involved in another central Eurasian war (laughs) why would we want to have any input in that whatsoever so um we're really at a, at, a, at a state in our nation where we are suffering consequences once again and judgment for our departure from biblical precept and uh, common sense. So I'll conclude with that. I thank you for your patience.